Welcome to the City Reach Baptist Podcast. If you would like more information about the life of our church, please go to our website at cityreach.com.au or like us on Facebook. We hope you enjoy this message. Um, If you're new, I want to let you know that we have new people here at church all the time, so please don't feel out of place. Now, I also want to let you know that if you're new, that Jesus has absolutely changed my life. For many years, I was not walking in a relationship with God. My family are not Christians, and uh, I, I was living for a completely other different way of life. And Jesus came into my life and changed my life and gave me not just something more to live for in this world, but gave me an eternity to live for. And so as you come into this building tonight, I want you to know that you're amongst friends, but I also want you to know that Christians don't believe that we're better than everybody else. We just believe that the gift of grace that God has given us is a gift worth receiving. And so if you're here in this building tonight, a really special welcome to you. This is a really cool night. Um, We're starting a new series in the life of our church called Trending, where we're seeking to deal with some of the tougher questions that get asked of the Christian faith, right? There are a lot of questions. A lot of questions about the Christian faith, and some of them can be jarring and some of them not so jarring. But the truth is is that as I've grown in my Christian faith, that some of those questions go away, but some of those questions are replaced by more questions. I don't know if that's been your experience as a Christian growing up. And so my prayer over these next few weeks is not just that we fill your head with more knowledge, that we make you smarter and able to answer questions, but actually the goal is that as we answer questions, that your awe for God would increase above your questions of God. Because as you go through this life, you will get more questions. Some of them will be jarring. Some of them will not be jarring. But what I've found is that as my awe for God increases, the questions I have for God don't sidetrack me anymore. And so we are going to deal with some tough questions, but my prayer for you is worship and all, right? And tonight is a cool night for you to be at because it's really the most difficult mountain that we're going to climb during this series. As we go through this series, we're going to deal with different fun questions. And um, really tonight we're starting at the, the hardest mountain to climb, which is really the best mountain to climb, right? I only want to answer tough questions if I believe that they were tough questions for me once. And the question that we've got tonight is, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so angry? I don't know if you've ever been asked that question before, right? It seems quite jarring, the um, attitude of the God of the Old Testament. Someone once said, I cannot believe in a God, I cannot believe in a God who shows anger when he could show kindness or calls himself a judge instead of calling himself a peacemaker. I cannot believe in a God who smites, condemns, rages or punishes. To me, there is no such God as thee. So for this person, they're unable to believe in a God who acts in a certain way. And it's actually really easy to argue against that argument because you can't deny someone's existence if you don't like their activity, right? So if someone is active and someone is doing something, you can't use their activity as an argument against their existence, But really what this question is trying to get at is how come the God of the Old Testament seems so much angrier than the God of the New Testament? So the Old Testament is everything that happened before Jesus came on the scene and the New Testament is everything that happens after Jesus came on the scene. So why do they feel so different? Well, I'd like to start in this way. What's the problem with anger? When I was 16 years old, I was dating a girl named Carly Roberts. My name is Carl Robinson. Her name was Carly Roberts. So you know that was destined for tragedy. And then, so I was 16 years old. And at the time, um, 
you, if you wanted to speak to your girlfriend, you didn't have a mobile phone. People needed to call the home phone, right? And there was this, there was this time where, um, where Carly called the home phone and then straight after it, my grandma called. And we had this thing called call waiting. And, and so I had to choose between girlfriend or grandma. And so I passed the phone over to my mum who spoke to my grandma who I thought it was going to be that 30-second call or that 60-second call. 20 minutes, my mum left my girlfriend Carly on the phone. And then so um, what I did was that my anger spun out of control and I punched a fist-sized hole through my bedroom door. I was on these beautiful experimental drugs for my acne called Arachitane, so watch out for those. And my anger was spinning wildly out of control. And when it comes to thinking about anger, some people have that definition, don't they? That what is anger? Anger is my rage and my emotion spinning wildly out of control. But that's not actually what anger is. Anger is a state of disturbing and energised passion in which a strong negative emotion is triggered by the perception of harm done to oneself, someone or something. So what it is, it's an energised passion when something that you value comes under threat. And if that's our definition, I actually don't have a problem with anger. I actually think there's a lot of things that we would affirm getting angry about. I think that we would affirm getting angry over the fact that it's pouring outside and we live in a prosperous community and some people in our prosperous community will not have somewhere to sleep tonight. I think that's a fair and reasonable thing to get angry about. I think it'd be, ang- it'd be fair to be angry about someone being judged for the colour of their skin. I think that it would be fair to be angry about the well-being of your family coming under threat. I think these are things that we would agree that it's okay to be angry about. Aristotle once said, anybody can become angry. That is easy. But to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, that is not within everybody's power and that is not easy. That's really a good insight into our question because I think the question, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so angry, is really getting at, can we affirm what God is angry about and the way in which he responds to his anger? To answer any question over God's anger, we really need to get something out of the way quite early, and that's to say that there is one God. There is not a God of the Old Testament and we introduce a new God of the New Testament. There is one God over all. The book of 1 Corinthians says, But we know that there is only one God, the Father, who created everything and we live for Him. And there is only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom God made everything and through whom we have been given life. So there is one God of the Old Testament and that is the same God That is the God of the New Testament. And so what angers the God of the New Testament is the same thing that angers the God of the Old Testament. So we need to ask, what makes this God angry? Well, we find that answer in Colossians 3, verses 5 to 9. It says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, which we would define as anger spinning wildly out of control. Malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self 
with its practices. What makes God angry? Sin makes God angry. Sin is any decision that we make that disregards God's perfect design for our lives. Sin is any decision that we make that disregards God's perfect design for our lives. Why does this make God angry? Well, firstly, it makes God angry because God has purposed a life for every person to thrive, and sin robs us of that gift. So we don't have any examples in Scripture of God creating rules for fun. That, as Venith said, God did not create rules so that he could stand from afar and then watch humans live lives where they were constantly falling over themselves for, their, for his own enjoyment. That's not why God created rules at all. God created rules so that we would thrive as God intended our lives to exist. Did you know that God wants you to experience joy? God is not hiding joy from you and his commands are trying to keep his joy secret. But every single command in the Bible is trying to reveal how you can live life and life in all of its fullness. So in John 10, 10, where it says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I, being Jesus, have come to give you life and life in all of its fullness. The thief in that section is not the devil. The thief are false teachers. And what Jesus is saying is not any teaching will do. Not any spirituality will do. But Jesus came bringing the truth so that you might experience life and life in all of its fullness. So God is angry at sin because it robs you of the thriving life that God has set aside for you. But God is also angry at sin because God created a world without sin. It was God's idea for you not to experience pain and suffering. We were the ones that brought that into the world. God is angry at sin because he wants something better for you. But if we want to be so bold to get to the full picture of God's anger, we need to realize that God is not just angry at sin. God is angry at sinners. The Bible says in 2 Kings 17, 18, Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel. Very, very angry with Israel, God's people, and remove them out of his sight. See, there's this unhelpful bumper sticker that says, hate the sin and love the sinner. It sounds nice, but it's actually nonsense. Because we can't separate our actions from who we are. We need to be accountable for our actions. If no one was accountable for their actions, then people that murdered other people should be allowed to have the keys to your house. People that steal things should be allowed to have the keys to your car. People that hurt children should be allowed to apply for jobs as kindergarten teachers. But the reality is that, is that it's a good thing that we are accountable for our actions, both good and bad. God has the right to be angry at sinners because it's right that there is accountability for actions. But when I was um, 16 and got angry, whether I was right in my anger, which I was, <laughs> or I wasn't right in my anger, which I wasn't, my anger spun wildly out of control. So you only answer half the question if you answer, what does God get angry at? You need to answer the question, how does God respond to that which makes him angry? Well, he responds in this way. 
Ephesians 2 says this, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. God responds with mercy. Verse 6 says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus. The first way that he responds is via his mercy pouring out the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. When I was in uh, year five to year seven at my school, um, you would accrue these um, points throughout the week. And if you got enough of these points, you weren't allowed to go out for fun Friday night, Friday afternoon activities, right? So you would get all this. That Luke, you're pulling a very sad face. I was sad too, right? The time that I missed out on Friday afternoon activities. You would accrue all these bad points. And on Monday, you would get a clean slate. The mercy of God is not just a clean slate. It's a clean slate plus the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards us. It's a clean slate plus the Holy Spirit, which empowers us for ministry and and seals our salvation. So you can't become saved and then be unsaved and then get saved again and then accidentally be unsaved the next day. God empowers you. He gives you spiritual gifts. He comforts you. He gives you boldness and He gives you courage. The Bible actually says that if you lean on the Holy Spirit, when it comes to sharing your faith, He will give you the right, the right words to say. It says in James verse 1, 5, let um, anyone who lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to or without reproach and it will be given to him. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit and the Bible promises that There is a time coming where we will pass away and we have a promised inheritance of heaven with God forever. That is the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. That's his mercy. So do you have regret over your past? God has mercy for you. Have you had times in your life where you've lacked to trust God, right? I would be the first person to put my hand up in the air. The Bible says that God has mercy for you. Have you never, ever, ever once called on the name of the Lord Jesus to be saved? Maybe you came in here because there's a bus stop out there and this was the first open building that you found, right, to get out of the rain. You don't even know what we're talking about. God has mercy for you, not just a clean slate, the immeasurable riches of his grace and mercy. That's the first way that he responds to his anger. For I've met enough wise people who have said to me, I love you enough to tell you the truth. And I want to say that to you too, that I love you enough to tell you the truth. And that, and that is that the second way that Jesus, our God, responds to us and responds to his anger is that Isaiah 3 verse 13 describes God as the just judge. And he does judge sin. Isaiah three thirteen says, The Lord has taken his place to contend He stands to judge peoples. The Bible says that God will not let any sin go unnoticed. And it is for that reason that I put it to you that that is exactly what this world needs. This world actually needs a just and fair judge. 
so that even those people in positions of privilege and positions of power, that because of the extravagance of their life and the situation that they're in, they will never, ever be accountable for their actions. We live in a world that if you're apart from God, that is the end of the story. That monsters can reign, that villains can win. But God's word says that even those people in positions of privilege and in positions of power, that God is the God in authority over all of the heavens and over all of the earth and every single person will be held to account. Even those people in positions of privilege and power that feel like they never ever be held to account, those same people will have to stand before a just judge. But the Bible also says in the book of Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all of us will be judged. All of us will be judged. Praise God. Praise God that in his word, in John 3.16, he says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So every single person that calls upon the Lord for mercy will be saved. Praise the name of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Tim Keller says, God sees us as we are, loves us as we are, and accepts us as we are, but by his grace, he does not leave us where we are that he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the extravagance of God's love towards us. So why does the God of the Old Testament seem so angry? To answer that, I would say four things. I would say that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And what makes the God of the New Testament angry is the same thing that makes the God of the Old Testament angry. I would say that anger is not the problem. It's what one is angry about and what one does with that anger, that is the problem. I would say that God's anger is rightfully aimed at sin and sinners who have walked away from his perfect design for human flourishing. And I would say that God's response to anger is a rightful judgment plus the good news of the gospel to all who call upon his name. That is the answer to our tough question. God is rightfully angry, just in his anger, and we have the good news of the gospel, which is our hope. But I want to deal with a scene in the Old Testament that is perhaps an incredibly jarring scene for some. There are many books, many, many books written about it, many articles, many arguments had over it, and it's still a hurdle for many people today. Because here at City Reach, we love you enough to tell you the truth, I don't want to pretend that this passage isn't there and neither should you. You shouldn't shy away from difficult passages. You should sit and pray and study and be equipped. So let me ask one of the hardest questions we might ever ask of the Old Testament, a question that has took me hours of study this week and hours of prayer to, be, to come to a resolution. I want to ask the question, why did God command the Israelites to kill the entire nation of the Canaanites including men, women, and children. 
Now, firstly, let me say that if you're a new person here tonight, you might be asking the question, why are they being so vulnerable here at church? Why are they letting the cat out the bag? And, and, and the truth is, is that here we don't want to give you the nice version of the truth. We want to give you the truth. And so in this series, we're not answering the easy questions, the easy at-back questions. We're going to answer the difficult questions because as you lie in bed at night and you consider your relationship with God, you need to be equipped with the truth of God. And we shouldn't shy away from the truth of God because it is the truth of God that brings hope. But you may not know about this situation in the Old Testament, so let me describe it for you very briefly. In the Old Testament, including a number of passages like Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 to 5, and 1 Samuel 15, verses 3, verse 3, God commands the Israelites to devote themselves to the complete destruction of their enemies living in Canaan, including the men, women, children, and infants. So the obvious question is why? Or a fuller question might be, does the Bible help me to understand how God could command the destruction of an entire nation? Well, first, we must note that prior to the death of Moses and after the birth of Christ, God's people have never been asked to complete such a task. Uh, A guy named Blaise Pascal once said, men never commit evil so fully and joyfully as when they do it for religious convictions. And I want to say quite clearly that those people that try to use passages like this in the Old Testament to commit their lives to holy war are not sitting under the authority of the Bible. It does not discredit the Bible when you use the Bible to go about evil business. You can't use the Bible, people's activities with the Bible to discredit the Word of God any more than I can use the activity and lives of people like King Jong-un or Joseph Stalin to discredit atheism. I can't discredit your life if I take your name and wave it around any more than you can take my name and wave it around and discredit me. So we need to ask the question, How in this situation in the Old Testament are we to understand the actions of Israel towards the Canaanites? Well, the Bible reveals that after the death of Moses and prior to the birth of Christ, Israel operated at times as God's judicial agent or judicial arm in the world, meaning that God would empower Israel to overrun nations who were committed to evil practices. The book of Judges speaks of this function while also noticing how terribly bad Israel was at it. So what made the Canaanites so evil? Well, to be called a Canaanite basically meant that you lived in this area of Canaan and you were part of what the Bible would list off of up to about 10 different nations lived in this area. And the activities of the Canaanites were at the very least offensive to God and at the very worst horrific to all of mankind. Their daily lifestyles included prostitution, incest, bestiality, public sex ceremonies to, um, to appease the gods of fertility, believing that in these ceremonies, the more um, sex that they had in public discourse, the more likely it was that God would bless their fertility. They operated in witchcraft, summoning evil spirits and most notably, Child sacrifice through burning alive of children, burning the lives of children. So they believed that if they were to offer up the life of one children, they would be blessed with many more children. There was an ancient saying about the Canaanites that went something like, it was better to die than to be a child of a Canaanite. The Canaanites believed that in offering children in burnt sacrifices, that they would increase their chances of fertility, 
The theory was if we kill some children, then perhaps our gods will give us more. The only last thing we're saying about the Canaanites is that they weren't a hermit community like the Amish, but they were an evil people with fortified cities ready to spread their evil across the world. So I am not unsettled by God giving a command to go to war with an evil nation, especially considering Genesis 15 verse 16 reveals that God was patient with Canaan and his patience lasted 400 years. The text says, until their sin had reached its full measure. One might actually ask, why didn't God judge the Canaanites sooner? I don't find that unsettling. However, it is jarring, the reference to the killing of children. So why did God not spare the children? I want to give you two answers to this question that will not satisfy you, and that one answer to that question that may divide the room. Resolution number one to this tough question, is that it didn't really happen like we read. This view of radical discontinuity is argued by those like Dr. C.S. Cowles of San Francisco Theological Seminary, who basically contends that if anything in the Old Testament doesn't line up with anything in the New Testament, then we should discount anything written in the Old Testament. The Old Testament writers had it wrong. They imposed their own sin into their own writings and they have a misguided interpretation of what happened. My problem with that viewpoint is that if you want to throw out anything in the Bible that makes you feel uncomfortable, then you won't have much of a Bible left. You'd also need to throw out all the radical calls to love, to lay down your life for someone else. You'd need to throw out all the examples of Jesus handing over his life to be given up for you and for I. Muslims refuse to believe that Jesus the prophet, they believe in Jesus the prophet, but refuse to believe that he went to a cross because they believe that prophets would be honoured. If you throw out everything in the Bible that makes you feel uncomfortable, then you will not have much of a Bible left. We need to reject the view that it didn't really happen like we read. Resolution number two is the age of accountability. This view argues that God was kind in killing children who had not yet come to an age where they would be held accountable for their rejection or acceptance of God. The problem with this perspective is that this passage in question simply doesn't... It, this, let me read that again. The problem with this perspective is that the passage in question simply don't speak to an age of accountability. So yes, there is room theologically to present a reasoned argument that God does save those who do not have the opportunity to cognitively decide to make a decision for Christ. However, nowhere in the passages in reference do we find God informing the reader of his motives behind these actions. Well, resolution number three, which is the approach that I feel most comfortable with support, is simply to say that God as judge has complete authority over his creation to enact his judgment on those imputed with sin, which includes children. So God has the authority of heaven and of earth to enact judgment on all people imputed with sin at their given time, which includes children. So what does it mean to have imputed sin? It basically means that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam uh, sinned, the stain of his sin was credited to our account. And you might say, that's not very fair. It's not very fair that someone else's sin is credited to my account because I might have made a different decision. Now, I spoke to the youth ministry about this a few months ago, and I said to them that if I was in the Garden of Eden, 
and I was told not to eat an apple, I wouldn't have just eaten the apple. I would have made apple juice, apple crumble, and apple pie, right? Because we all have this propensity in us towards sin. And the reality is that no, none of us would have made any other decision than that because all of us, as we've lived our lives, have not chosen that. All of us have chosen not God. The truth is that the passages in question that relate to the destruction of Canaan aren't actually written to justify God's actions at all. And where God's word isn't intending to provide us with the answers we seek, we should be very careful not to twist any part of it to pretend that comfortable answers can be found where they actually cannot. So the issue with these texts is that for many of us, who have gone, many people who have gone before us and for many of us who will come, many of those who will come after us, they are stuck with the question, how am I supposed to respond to a God who chooses to reveal to uh, us himself in this way? How am I supposed to respond to a God who chooses to reveal himself in this way? Well, I would say this. Ask the Lord to help you receive the teachings of the passages in question which is to receive the revelation of Rahab. You see, the primary purpose for the inclusions of these texts, it's not to throw your faith into a spin. It's not to cast doubt for you. It's not to make you question your inclusion in the family of God. It's not to make you doubt. It's actually supposed to increase your faith. So how do these passages do that? Well, they do that in a, heart, in a huge part through the inclusion of a character named Rahab. Who was Rahab? Well, Rahab is a character included in these texts to tell us one thing. There is no one too far, there is no one too far out of reach of our merciful Saviour. No one is too far out of reach if you are willing to call upon the name of the Lord. So who was Rahab? Well, Rahab did not have a great position in society. Rahab was uh, living amongst the Canaanites in the city of Jericho hours before it was besieged, right? In her own community, she wasn't a, a person of great repute. She was a woman, which at that time meant that she was less than a second-class citizen because her, um, even her testimony was not to be heard in court. She, she, her, her place in society was also fragile, not just because she was a woman, but also because she was a prostitute, which meant that other women didn't care for her and men abused her. We also have good reason to believe that she was a temple prostitute, meaning that she was one of the key instruments the Canaanites used to worship their fake gods. There is nothing in Rahab's position in her culture or position before God that excuses her from God's judgment. Yet the book of Joshua tells us that her and her whole family were saved. Why? Because in the face of God's judgment, when everyone else around her chose to ignore the reality of judgment, she knew that her faith would be met by a merciful saviour. There is a scene in the book of Joshua where the Israelites send a few spies into the town of Jericho to get a sense of what the army of the Canaanites was like. And these men start being chased away. And so Rahab hides these men in her home. And we pick up this story with Rahab saying this to the men. She says, in Joshua 2, 
I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Why were they fearful? They were fearful because she knew that they were guilty. She knew that they were guilty and the Lord was coming. Verse 11 says, And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God. For the Lord your God, He is God. In the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And just in this one passage, you get this powerful declaration of Rahab that the Lord is God. And in his position of sovereign authority, there is no sin that is hidden from his sight. Even in a fortified city, even in a city that is covered in sin, every single sin will be noted. Look in verse 12 up on the screen. It says, she says to the, the spies, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. The passage isn't trying to answer why God acts in the way that he does. He's actually, this passage is inserted here to ask us a question. And that's in the face of incoming judgment, how we respond to the invitation of a merciful saviour. When judgment comes for all of us, because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, will we respond to the mercy of a kind, gracious saviour? For none of us, our spirit, this story is in here to show us that we do not have anything on our resume that can discount God's mercy coming to us. Nothing on our resume. Though the Lord is fair in his judgment, God longs to pour out mercy to all those in need of saving. Psalm 86 verse 15, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This week I got pulled over by the cops. I don't know if anyone saw me get pulled over by the cops because it happened on Foster's Road just as school was starting. <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> I pulled onto Foster's Road and the cops were actually a few cars back. And I don't know if you've ever been pulled over before and you're pretty sure it's not you that's about to get pinked and then it is you and your heart jumps. Well, I got pulled, uh, pulled over on Foster's Road and um, the cop came out to my window and I went down my window and he said, uh, Hi, sir, did you know that your car is not registered? And I freaked out because I didn't know. And I was like, oh, I didn't, I didn't know. And he goes, um, he goes, oh, that's okay. If you just register it now, then we'll let this one slide. So what did I do is I got my phone out straight away, downloaded the Easy Reg app. You might need to write this down. Downloaded the Easy Reg app and, um, and registered my car straight away. And he came back and I showed him the receipt of my phone. And, and he said, all right, cool, that's all right. We'll let this one slide. Here's a notice just letting you know what you've done. And you can do whatever you want with that. And he walked away. 
And some people think that that is what the gospel is, right? That um, you've done a lot of bad things, you've done bad things, and that when judgment comes, that the Lord is going to come to you and say, I'm just going to let this slide. I'm in a good mood and I'm having a great day and what you did is not that big a deal, so I'm just going to let that slide. That's not the gospel. The news is actually better because we have a just judge and in his judgment, he needs to judge rightly. The gospel is actually much more like this. I heard the story of a police officer who pulled a woman over for speeding. And um, she pulled this woman over and walked up to the car. And um, as, she, as the police officer walked up to the car, uh, came to the car window and lady rolled down her window and she was just in tears. She had kids screaming in the back of the car and she was just exhausted, right? And um, the woman looked at the police officer and said, uh, can you just let me off with this? I can't afford to pay it. Can you please let me off of this? I can't afford to pay it. What the police officer did, it was really quite profound because the police officer responded to her in mercy but also held up the law. What that police officer did was that he went back to his car and he wrote that woman a ticket. And he walked over to that woman's car and he showed her the ticket and said, you have broken the law and there is a penalty for that but I'm going to pay it for you. And that police officer took that payment and he paid the penalty that somebody else deserved. And that is the gospel. That God doesn't forget the law. He remembers the law, upholds it, and then offers his grace and mercy. He offers King Jesus, who pays the penalty for us. The reality is, is that when we consider God's anger, we know that it is just, we know that it is merciful. We also know that as we move through Scripture, that there will be times and seasons where we don't understand why God acts in the way that he does. And the offer for you is that you can respond to God's gift of mercy, his invitation to come to know him, or, or you cannot. What God longs for every person Every person, it's happened in my life. The gift that has happened in my life is that through the movement of the Holy Spirit in my life, that my awe for God increases above my questions of God. You might have come in here and you've got questions about why God acts in the way he does, why your life has turned out the way that it has, why these challenges exist in your life. But the truth is that God's Holy Spirit is here and he longs to pour out his mercy upon you. It might be that you're here tonight and you've never experienced the mercy of God. You got invited by a friend and you don't know Jesus. And that as we've talked about this gift of the gospel, that you want to experience that mercy. We believe that God is real, that he does not stand afar, and he longs to pour out his mercy upon you now. I would love to pray for you. In the life of our church, we'd just like to close our eyes and bow our head just to be able to focus our hearts. I want to invite you to do that if you feel comfortable. God, I just want to pray that your spirit would be moving amongst your people now. There are incredibly difficult passages in Scripture that are too big for us to understand, but we also believe in the power of your truth. 
We believe that you uphold your law. And we believe that you pour out grace and mercy on those people that will receive your free gift of grace. And so God, I just want to pray for any person that is here tonight that has questions for you that they feel like are stunting their growth. I just want to ask, Lord, that by your Spirit you might move in power now, comfort them, increase their awe of you, so that they might worship you afresh. We trust that you are the great comforter. We trust that your Spirit moves in power. We trust that this service is not an accident on your calendar, but you have purposed it for your glory. And so we lean upon you, God. We are dependent upon you to move. And God, I also just want to pray for the person here tonight that has never responded to your mercy, has never called upon your name for salvation. If you're that person here tonight, I just want to ask you just to pray, just to pray like you're talking to a heavenly father who may not be a great representation of your earthly father, but we do have a heavenly father who longs to pour out his mercy and love. And I just want to invite you to talk to your heavenly father and just say, I receive your mercy. The greatest gift in our life is receiving the mercy of God. Father, we just thank you that you're a kind and merciful God and we pray that we would be a church that leans heavily on the mercy of our Creator. Pray these things in your name. Amen.